You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Dan Laird, who currently commands 1st of the 38th Infantry, the Rock of the Marne. Dan, thanks for being on The Spear. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be here. So, how'd you wind up in the Army? So, both my grandfathers had served in the military, um, both enlisted men in World War II. Um, my on the paternal side, uh, had an infantry NCO, um, you know, entered as a private uh, a year and a half later, was a sergeant first class uh, in the infantry in the European theater. And then uh, my mother's father was a supply uh, technician, um, same rank uh, in the Pacific under MacArthur. And so I kind of grew up with this uh, sense of, you know, servant uh, type mentality from them, with them having served in the military uh, during World War II. And my father had flat feet, and so he uh, he did not get to participate in Vietnam. But uh, I always felt like I was drawn to serving, you know, fellow mankind, serving my country, and that uh, drew me to the military at a young age. So, were you the kid playing with your grandfather's surplus in the backyard, or at times? At some point, you have to actualize that. How'd you actualize it? Well, so uh, I initially uh, tried to come to West Point uh, for, you know, straight out of high school. Um, did not make it in my first try. Uh, instead, took an ROTC scholarship, uh, spent a year doing that, reapplied to West Point, and by chance got in on my second try. And I say by chance because I was initially told no. Uh, went ahead and initiated my, uh, my uh, admin packet for, or admissions packet for the next year for a third look. Um, and then uh, right before our day, uh, someone had broke their arm and was unable to report. And the director of admissions saw my tenacity and called me and uh, offered me a spot in the class of 2003, which I jumped on. So you show up here, it's 1999. Global war on terror hasn't started. The nation's been at peace for about a decade at this point. How did the events of 9-11 shape your journey here and what you wound up doing in the Army? So I was already locked into my contract as a, as a junior. Uh, and so there was no turning back at that point, uh, nor would I have necessarily thought that way. It was just kind of a wake-up call because as you move towards the end of your cadet experience, the looming reality of the rucksack that you're about to carry as an army leader, you start to sense it approaching. And so I think the war didn't fundamentally 
change my dedication or commitment or why I was here to serve, uh, but it certainly made it a little more pressing that I commit myself to the profession to be the leader that soldiers deserved. You said you had a grandfather who was in the infantry, you had a grandfather who was a supply technician. What called you to the branch you picked? Did they play any role in that? So, um, you know, my grandfather that was the supply technician, he honestly never talked to me about the war. Um, uh, and, and honestly, my, my other grandfather that was in the infantry never did either, um, at least not in specific terms. All that my uh, grandfather that was in the infantry asked was that I not go in the infantry. And he wouldn't really elaborate. And so here during the cadet experience, you know, I was originally thinking I was going to go to medical school and be a doctor. And then Camp Buckner happened. And I just loved being out in the field during infantry week, smelling terrible and crawling around in the mud. And it was just awesome. And so for me, I knew as a yearling, uh, as a sophomore, that that was what I wanted. And of course, I kind of teased it out with my grandfather. He was very unhappy. And then whenever I told him that I had branched infantry, he actually cried. Uh, he was not happy. Um, but uh, after I came back from Iraq a couple years later before he passed, um, I had a newfound kind of comradeship with him where he was actually willing to confide in me all the stories that he never was willing to share with anybody else. And so it actually ended up being um, a pretty awesome experience. You mentioned Iraq. You commissioned in 03. What was your pipeline after leaving West Point? Came out of West Point, met my wife for the first time the week after graduation. Uh, this podcast is not long enough to delve into how that happened. This sounds like an arranged marriage. No, no. Uh, it was just a chance meeting in my hometown. She grew up 20 minutes away from where I grew up. We never knew each other. Just happened to run into each other. Uh, hit it off. Went to Benning. We were dating long, long distance uh, during that period. Went straight through I IOBC, Ibolic um, now, uh, straight into Ranger School. Uh, graduated, going straight through Ranger School, and uh, then married my wife uh, by the Ranger School chaplain uh, two days after graduating Ranger School. And our honeymoon was driving to Fort Lewis, which was my first duty assignment. I got there. The unit had already deployed to OIF-1. And uh, we were on the tail end of OIF-1 at that point. So they were a couple months ahead of me. Uh, and they put me straight on a plane, and I went over. And within two weeks, I was a platoon leader in Iraq, in Mosul. That must have been a, a culture shock for you, but also for your wife, right? Welcome to the military. By the way, I'm out. And oh, by the way, we just met each other. Let's just say that the fact that we survived the first five years uh, with the pace and the shock uh, levied on her, who had been uninitiated at all, to the military. The fact that we made it through that is probably um, why we're still together right now. And she's an awesome lady, and I'm, I'm, uh, I don't deserve her. The first five-year pace as a company-grade officer, what was that like? So the immediate deployment, uh, then we hadn't settled into this R4 gen cycle yet that we used to have where there was a predictable deployment after a predictable train-up period and the PCSs were all programmed. That hadn't existed yet. We were still very early in the wars, and so we just knew we had to get ready to go as soon as possible. And so rapid train-up of the unit, get to our readiness metrics that the Army demanded at the time. And then I was looking for a different experience, uh, and I went to the Old Guard. And so uh, I took a couple years off the deployment train to go to the Old Guard, uh, which was... Uh, in hindsight, a tremendously developmental experience, just the exposure and uh, you know, getting to serve with some of the best people there uh, and to see a different side of the Army. Um, but then it was right back on it. I hadn't deployed in a couple years. Things were getting interesting in Afghanistan. Uh, the Army called me, canceled my MCCC orders and said, 
you're going on a MIT team instead of the military transition teams. And uh, I was like, okay, and do I get a choice of where I go? And they said, yes, pick Iraq or Afghanistan. And I was like, well, I haven't been to Afghanistan yet. So uh, I wanted to join to see the world, I guess. And part of it is that that's, that's what I picked. So I went to Afghanistan then as a MIT team leader um, in Kandahar province and um, then on to company command after I completed Triple C. Where in Kandahar were you? Spin Bulldog, so as far south as you can go. So we woke up every morning uh, seeing Pakistan right on right outside the base. And so, and were you advising an Afghan Kandak or a company? Or? It was a brigade, actually. Okay. And so we started out as a team led by a major, uh, but we needed to break the teams apart. And so we broke into three teams. Um, good, good friend of mine, Jabrell Means, he's a battalion commander down in the 82nd right now. Uh, he actually took one team. I took the one that remained at Spin Bulldog and then... Our, uh, our team leader uh, went off to become a provincial lead uh, up in Oruzgan. I was the XO for three or four months, I think, and then uh, I took over the team. Uh, oddly enough, my, my mentor, the, the officer, the Afghan officer that I was mentoring was uh, Abdul Razak, who later became uh, the general of the entire South and uh, who famously now uh, was assassinated right next to General Miller a few years ago. So very, very sad to see him pass um, because he and I uh, shared a lot of, um, I think, positive relationships or positive experiences in that year. But uh. The MIT team must have been a transition. Conventional infantry, spit and polish infantry, MIT team. How did that transition impact your sense and, and to the leadership that you demonstrate today in a, as a battalion commander? I learned very early on that the higher the risk the more you have to pay attention to discipline and standards. Um, and I think that was never more clear than when I was on a mid-team because we didn't have any special training, really. Um, there was quite a bit of risk. You're talking six to nine Americans running around with unvetted Afghan battalions hundreds of kilometers away from the closest uh, coalition forces um, with just a sat radio. And uh, we made it work. Uh, but I learned very early on how to do risk management right. And one of the things that I learned was that when the stakes are highest, that is not the time to be loose on anything. That has become a repeated theme, I think, in the subsequent experiences that I've had in command, both at the company and battalion level. Advising this Afghan unit, advising or being advised, it almost sounds like, by Abdul Razak, what were some of the formative experiences or moments on that deployment that have shaped you since then that lead to this discussion of standards and discipline? So we we were very cognizant, um, and we had a great uh, great team leader um, to start off with, and and a great cohort of captains. It was just it was a just a tremendous talent all in one place with this team. So while we didn't have any specialized training, we all had at least one combat deployment under our belts. We were um, very um, committed to the profession, I think, as a cohort. And um, one of the one of the early experiences was when we tried to get down to one of the farthest outposts that we were responsible for advising because no one had never been there. And it was as far south in Afghanistan as you can get. And you had to drive for hours and hours through the desert to just get there. And so all we had was these up-armored Humvees and we had to get creative. We had to find local Afghans that could do class three resupply so that we could get enough fuel because 
you know, we couldn't just use Afghan diesel. It's too dirty. It wouldn't wouldn't burn right in the vehicles. So we had to find a way to get uh, either our clean diesel or JP8 in a reliable mechanism. So we had to use uh, uh, vetted locals to deliver at certain link-up points in the middle of the desert and had to make sure they they got there. And we had to know that our communication systems were going to work and that we had enough towing capacity in case we lost a vehicle that we could get everybody and everything back home. And so we we learned to plan ad nauseum and to make sure all of our stuff was wired tight. That was the first lesson uh, because everything we did was super high risk because we're talking literally like six Americans going out. And and I'm not kidding when there's just like one sat radio. And and so that was just the environment there and the risk that we were allowed, you know, that they were allowed to accept, but we were willing to accept, I think, as, as the government at the time, uh, for us to get out and try to advance the Afghans. The second big lesson that I learned was don't always assume that your way is best. And so, uh, and, and we can think that this is unconventional. Really, it's just paying attention. And so I learned early on that the American right way of doing things wasn't necessarily the Afghan right way of doing things. And we were out on one mission with the, the, the Canadians and Abdul Razik, and he insisted that we needed to approach the mission a certain way. It didn't jive with our doctrine at all. The Canadians weren't about it uh, because they share a common doctrine with us. They were like, no. Um, and really what he was doing was using us as bait, which was a little unsettling, but he knew what he was doing. And so he was, you, know, you drive your forces here, and we'll draw out the guys we want to capture because they're going to try to set IEDs for you. And then he had little teams of plainclothes guys that were out and ready to snatch these guys up, and it was incredibly effective. And we caught a couple guys that, or he caught a couple guys that the coalition had been searching for for years that had been responsible for a number of IEDs and VBIDs in the South. Um, and we did this all in one day just because we were willing to kind of listen to his way of doing things because he, he understood the mind of the enemy better than we did. So. I think those are the two big things, like never never take for granted the value of planning and keeping your stuff wired tight. Number two is never assume when you're in a foreign country that your way is the best way or the only way. You got to kind of keep an ear to the ground and listen to the people that have been there a while. For all the stories we've talked about on the spear, you, know, you hear the by, with, and through moniker. It's discussed frequently, but that seems to be a strong case of him almost inverting that to having his mission accomplished through you with his forces as opposed to the other way around. How did you brief that as a captain up to hire saying, hey, I'm going to go out and be bait? <laughs> well, so uh, some people won't want to admit this, but at the time there wasn't much briefing hire. Uh, it was it was literally, we, we were an economy of force and we were given broad guidance and, and allowed to run with it. Um, and so routine reporting uh, was more the standard. Uh, asking permission uh, to do missions really hadn't become much of a thing at that point. It was very much, what is your assessment on the ground uh, as the ground force commander? Do you think this is worth the risk? If so, do it and just give us the outcome. Uh, and as long as we were accounting for people uh, and higher headquarters knew when and where we were moving uh, so that they could provide air support or any additional um uh, readiness status for uh, medical evacuation, things like that. Like that, that was really what mattered was they would handle any additional external resource prioritization uh, and we would do the missions as we saw fit. Coming out of that MIT tour, where did your career take you? So to Triple C uh, initially and then off to command um, 
uh, Alpha Company of 1st of the 26th Infantry, the Blue Spaders, uh, whenever they stood up at Fort Knox as the under the Duke Brigade, the separate brigade of one ID at the time. What was company command like, having had the experiences you did? It was awesome. Uh, it, it was a great experience. I got to command that company for almost three years, the same company, and we stood it up. And so when I took command, it was me, a first sergeant, and one second lieutenant. Uh, and a month later, I had 100 brand new privates straight out of basic training, and that was it. And uh, slowly, NCOs trickled in over the next uh, two or three months. And um, it was really cool to get to build an organization from the ground up, deploy it back to Afghanistan in a very different way. So we were in Coast Province this time. But then bring it home, retrain it again, hand it over uh, to another exceptional officer and, and see him run with it for another deployment. Uh, just really fantastic experience. At that point, I didn't know whether I was going to stay in the Army or not, um, but company command was so awesome. It enticed me to stick around to see what was what was next. You talked about risk assessment earlier and making risk-based decisions and you know kind of what level you have comfort with. Spin Bulldog, risk acceptance, risk tolerance seemed very high. It was. was it in coast as well as a company commander, or has you, where you sit changed where you stood? So I think uh, the risk... Tolerance was still very high. Uh, I mean, at that point in the war, this was 2011, we were, so in some ways we were starting to become a little bit more risk averse, but there was still just tons of risk inherent in trying to build Afghan police and border patrol and army elements into something that could self-secure an area for some stability. We lost a couple of soldiers on that tour. Uh, it was still incredibly violent, not necessarily more IEDs than, than uh, the direct firefights, but very cognizant of risk. And my, my experience on the MIT team actually paid a lot of dividends in how I approached deliberate risk management for that deployment um, and you know, develop controls, train my leaders to think a certain way, um, and then also to adapt uh, as we started to understand who on the Afghan side was willing to take our instruction uh, and willing to fight for themselves. Uh, and then we uh, applied ourselves accordingly. You do eventually get the battalion colors, right? You've got an infantry battalion. What's happening in that battalion as you're showing up? You know, what, what, would, what had you been told was about to occur to you? So I learned a couple months out that the unit was deploying to OIR so inherent resolve and that the battalion i was taking was going to go to northeast syria so it was the one battalion uh, that was going to go to the the syria mission because that's what we're down to right now um and which is which is about right um for the mission that was kind of exciting uh, i felt like i had a little bit of insight into how that mission had evolved just because of my experience in the range regiment and seeing some of our uh, counterpart task forces accomplish the de-ISIS mission early from the 2015 to 18 period. And then being down at SOCOM, I saw the, the kind of maturing of that theater uh, after we had consolidated a little bit more to the northeast and, and uh, redrawn the lines. And so it, it was kind of neat, but also kind of scary because I was flying out five weeks after taking command. And there's no, all your stuff's already in the containers on the boat, and you have no time to train your organization. So whatever the last guy gave you is what you have to go into this new situation. So a little, a little unnerving. Um, and I, 
I had a very short amount of time to get my leaders in the headspace that I felt they needed to be in to accomplish that mission successfully. It sounds like Lieutenant Colonel Laird had a very similar experience to Lieutenant Laird of showing up and getting kicked out the door immediately. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of a pattern in my career is that uh, all my jobs are either something that no one's ever done before or that I certainly have never had any practice at. And so this is uh, until I got battalion command. And, you know, I'd always heard for years that battalion command is the first time that an officer will feel like, the army has prepared me for this job. And I got to say, that's pretty true. Um, and whether it was just a coincidence of all my unique experiences and just how luck and timing kind of laid those out for me, I don't think so. I think the army actually does a great deal of investment and it's pretty methodical uh, into all the key and developmental positions. And so I felt by the time I got to battalion command that I was very confident in giving direction uh, and guidance and priorities, and uh, which is really a battalion commander's job anyway, along with risk management. We'll throw that one back in there again. But yes, uh, and, and again, new theater, n- never personally been there. Um, it, it was going to be a new experience. And so I, I kind of drew on some of those er- earlier lessons where I have to be confident for my organization that I'm able to set the right priorities and give the right guidance. But at the same time, I have to have an eye on assessments because I remembered from Afghanistan that often things aren't always as they seem and there may be better ways. And so uh, I was still simultaneously open to the idea that maybe there's something more to what's going on than what I've heard tangentially in these briefs to general officers or seen on the news or talked to my friends who had been there about. So open-minded, but yet kind of uh, steadily focused on the direction that you, you feel you need to head out out the door on. So. What was the guidance that you gave the junior leaders in your formation, those squad leaders, those lieutenants, even those young company commanders? I can't remember the the full um, initial commander's guidance. I have it written down somewhere, but uh, a lot of it drew on those earlier lessons. And so first was, you know, never compromise on standards and discipline. In the worst times, uh, when you know the least, prepare the most um, and make sure your stuff's wired tight. And so that was that was kind of a going in foundation. Um, the second piece uh, that I brought in, um, and, and I needed to make it relatable because I did bring in uh, at least my senior squad leaders that were going to be patrol leaders potentially, uh, because I knew this is the one infantry battalion in the army that is executing tactical activities on the strategic edge. And so you're literally confronted with great power competitors every day. And so we would run into Russian patrols every day um, because there is shared space or contested space, depending on how you want to think about it or you know what your vantage point is. But there's an agreement to share the road. Now, who does more sharing is is uh, you know <laughs> relative to that country's kind of attitude or perspective at the time, but we we knew that we were going to have all this strategic risk that a mistake by a platoon leader or a sergeant, um, especially with the information environment today, could have dramatic effects on even national level policy. So we had to make sure we were wired tight. So the, 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 the relatable piece of advice that I gave, and I got this from Chuck Albertson, um, a great NCO mentor of mine, just retired, uh, former uh, regimental sergeant major at the 75th. But he always used to talk about the, the three laws of combat. And so the first is look cool. The second is always know where you are. 
And the third is, if you don't know where you are, look cool. And uh, a lot of young guys, uh, and even a lot of young people in soft, misunderstand this looking cool part. And they think it's about the Oakleys, or it's about the uniform that you're wearing, and uh, having your sleeves rolled up, or something like that. And it's, that's not what it's about at all. It's about looking squared away. It's about looking like you're where you belong. It's about looking like you're someone that no one wants to mess with because you're on top of your game. And uh, I, I had a little, uh, you know, the unit prior to us in Syria had a, a small run-in with the Russians where things got a little tense. Uh, there was a, a non-hostile meeting engagement between two patrols. The, the Russian patrol seemed a, a little agitated uh, that the American patrol had gone as far down the road as, as they had well within the agreed territory um but there was still some some agitation and i don't want to things didn't get physical but um things got heated to the point where uh weapons were being pulled into higher ready statuses on both sides and that was not good it it amounted to nothing everybody kind of simmered down and they went their separate ways but um one of those things that one of those inflection points where things could have gone badly. And I use this as an example with my leaders. And, and I was like, when you bump into that Russian patrol or Syrian patrol and they start to grip their weapons more tightly and start to raise them towards you, do you know where you are? Like, how do you look to them? Like, do you look nervous? Do you look flippant? Like, are you able to look them in the eye and in their own language? tell them, hey, comrade, relax. We're not enemies today. If you can do that, and uh, you know, I actually spit out the Russian uh, at them because I had prepared some of these lines. And I was like, if you can do that, they're going to say that American's a cool cat. He knows where he's at. I might need to reassess. And they'll de-escalate. Thankfully, we never had to really put too much of that into practice. Things were fairly stable while we were there. But nonetheless, uh, I think they got the point. And uh, I'm very proud of my team. It was a very successful deployment. Uh, they, they really got after it and did the right thing and understood the, the rules of the game. What were those lieutenants and sergeants being tasked with from battalion? And what, you know, kind of what were the left and right limits that you gave them as their commander? So... Uh, first and foremost, we, we partner uh, with our Kurdish partners uh, in the area, the SDF. And so we never went out without them. And so they are the governing face of that local area. And so we always did things with them. We weren't unilateral. We're not occupiers. We're not there uh, to take their oil, even though this is the ongoing narrative between Iran and Russia. We're not there for any of that stuff. And, you know, that's the the Kurds are administrating that kind of semi-autonomous area in northeastern Syria. So we would work with them no matter what. And uh, that was rule number one. Number two was always seek de-escalation. But if fired upon, win. And so I made that very clear. Like, if someone was going to become the aggressor and take lethal, lethal action on us, we were going to win that fight. Um, but to always seek to de-escalate. And the second was preserve innocent life. Or the third was preserve innocent life. Um, and uh, 
those really formed the three. I think I had a couple more just points of guidance uh, and our key tasks for my commander's intent, but those three formed the core. And uh, my leaders were receptive and they ran with it. And so um, tan, you know, hand in hand with all that was you know, learn the area, learn the people, learn the norms, uh, learn how the Kurds are doing business, the SDF. Um, and it's not just the Kurds. The SDF is a conglomeration of Arabs and Kurds and Turkmen. And uh, it's, it's, it's a multinational coalition of its own um, that we partner with and, and work with them and, and work with SOF because SOF are there. Uh, we're doing area security. We're maintaining the status quo. We're maintaining the stability and the boundaries. Um, and then the SOF guys are doing uh, the continuing de-ISIS mission. So we have to play well together because we're securing the bases we're providing a lot of the support we're securing a lot of the logistics and and you know they need us and we need them like you can't do the mission without either side and so uh, we needed to have just as strong of a relationship inside the coalition household as we did with the Kurds uh, or the SDF on the outside. I want to keep looking at the lieutenants and the, and the young sergeants, right? So looking back to your mid-experience, you said earlier that it was this at least the second pump for most of you. You'd all done a combat deployment before. You kind of knew what to expect. Um, Correct. Certainly with regards to, to, you know, to seeing the elephant. By the time your battalion deploys, though, the level of experienced young leaders at the squad and platoon level has dropped off precipitously because we pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan for the most part. Did that factor into your assessment? And, and if so, how? It, it did, um, because the very few people that I did have that had been on deployments, they were doing, you know, guarding Bagram from a tower or something like that. There, were, there was very little resident experience in the kind of operations we were doing. So I had to, and again, this is where the emphasis on being disciplined came in. And so we put a great deal, my sergeant major and I, um, we put a lot of energy into making sure that the organization did all the basics right. And so you know, if you this is come to some of the listeners have probably heard, though, you know, a professional is someone who does the basics right every time. That's what we were focusing on because we knew we didn't have this great depth of operational experience and we didn't have time to build it. And so we're in the mission. We know the stakes are high, and so when the stakes are high, double down on discipline and and organizational standards, and that's exactly what we did, and it did pay dividends. And that that starts with doing PMCS on your vehicle right, because that thing's got to work for you all the time. When you're way out, you know, a hundred miles, and, and northeastern Syria is pretty big, so we would have patrols a hundred miles out from their hub base, and your stuff's got to work. You got to know how to use it. You got to be an expert. And that just takes practice. It takes dedication. It takes the discipline when you're tired from doing an eight hour patrol, just beating hundreds of miles on the tires to come back and reset your vehicles and to do a good PMCS and take it to the mechanic and help the mechanic get everything straight and get all your fluids topped off and to clean your weapons. It just takes a heck of a lot of discipline. And so that's where we focused our energy. And I think it was time well spent. How did you divide or do a division of labor between you and the sergeant major? Probably not as good as we should have. I think we were both just trying to be everywhere 
all the time. Uh, the reality was I needed to do a lot of the partnership with the more senior SDF folks. Um, and so I ended up doing a lot more of that senior partnering, uh, mission planning, um, information operations, collaboration, all that kind of stuff. And, and the sergeant major really took the lead on, hey, are we doing the basics right? And he was, he was kind of my guy who could get out to all the bases because it was a major muscle movement just to get out to all the bases because it's a it's like a small country uh all under one battalion task force and so you literally you'd have to hop a helicopter and it would take you five five to 14 days to make the full uh the full kind of circuit to see all the five bases that we were at so he was my guy that could go every month like clockwork and make sure he went and spent a few days doing patrols and just kind of keep his finger on. Is everybody at the farthest reach of the frontier, are they doing what we're telling them to do every day? Are they living up to that? Uh, he was the guy who could tell me that that was going on. Um, and then I got to focus the majority of my energy on the partnership side, on uh, the informing higher headquarters of uh, both potential potential tactical and um, kind of strategic shifts uh, in the posturing of competitor forces and our partners and then also uh, put a lot of effort into planning for the whole element. The partner forces and the competitor forces and those strategic shifts, how are you collecting that information and how are you disseminating it back, you know, kind of in a feedback loop to the rest of the organization? So internal sharing was key. Uh, and so we would routinely talk as all the, you know, all the commanders uh, would talk so we could see, because again, this is, this is like a, like a small country that, that you're, you're trying to, uh, you know, make sure it stays somewhat stable. And so there was distinct areas where culturally the people were different um the enemy's activities were different there were some areas where it was more of an isis threat some areas where it was more iranian proxy type threat some areas where um you were just dealing with the 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 tricky the tricky uh non-hostile engagements with russian forces or syrian forces um where the description that i gave of what's going on there to to um uh, the officer who replaced me was, I said, it's it's an information war with guns. And so uh, that can be tricky to navigate, um, particularly for young officers and NCOs. Yeah. In the course of this deployment, obviously with the shifting, the up and down nature of relations with the other forces going there, is there something that sticks out in your mind as a, a potential turning moment or a potential turning point as we discussed earlier? Yeah, one of my platoons uh, got... And, and like I was saying, every every area had a different kind of feel um, with who the threat was and what the challenge was day to day. But generally, there were areas where the Syrian government still held a lot of sway. And, and it was weird. You'd come across these pockets of otherwise the SDF control this and these people are generally friendly to us. So suddenly you come across a town and they're still really tied to Bashar Assad. So... And, and there were different uh, proxy forces and uh, different elements that would try to, to stoke the ire of those folks and use their allegiance to Assad against us um, to get them to do things, to try to push us into a corner to where we would escalate and potentially vi uh, violate the ROE 
Um, another real feature of future war is just where we're at with the information uh, environment. And it, I called it ubiquitous surveillance. Like you are always surveilled. Someone is watching you and you're probably being recorded. And so the standards of conduct for us are, are uh, astronomically high, higher than they've ever been in human history because any misstep, uh, no matter how well-intentioned, can be spun uh, into a Twitter video uh, that, that can quickly spall out of control. So I had this one platoon. Uh, platoon leader's name was uh, Lieutenant Cameron Cobb. The platoon sergeant um, uh, was Sergeant First Class Berryman. Uh, phenomenally talented, uh, both of them, and and uh, they got in a situation where they we were intentionally probing some of these areas to kind of keep the forces or the the people that were not that were more likely to ally with our opponents uh, or adversaries to keep them a little off balance. And so we were doing mostly reconnaissance just to see where this jagged boundary of these no-go areas or the unfriendly areas lied. So we were trying to better understand. They were out doing exactly what I told them to. They're trying to better understand the environment and and figure out who is who and you know they 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 got into a real sticky situation where we had some foreign agents kind of got a town together and whether this was by threat of violence or whether they paid them off um we don't exactly know but they they got all these people to basically come and swarm the mraps so you know the platoon is literally sitting there people with baseball bats cricket bats and sticks just climbing all over um our vehicles and uh you know the platoon leader uh, we start to get guys that are in gun turrets. You know, guys are trying to grab our heavy weapons and pull them off the trucks. There's uh, people you know, hitting our gunners with sticks, and very tense situation because they they know they know they're being videoed. In fact, you can see the guys with AKs, low slung, no threat, can't can't do anything. They're non-combatants. You can see them in the back, and you know they're foreign agents, and they're sitting there with their cell phones out, just videotaping. So you see what's going on. You see that you are in a baited ambush, a baited IO ambush. And how do you deal with that as a young officer in an NCO when you got guys getting bludgeoned with sticks and you're like, oh, the obvious answer is I'm going to shoot these guys that are hitting our guys. But that's a loss. That's a strategic loss for us. So the platoon leader and platoon sergeant, I got to give it to him. I don't know if I would have had the wherewithal as a platoon leader to get out of that situation, but they did. So they, they, uh, they threw... Um, bangers, stun grenades out, shocked everyone for just a second where people jumped off the vehicles and and kind of were like, what's going on? Because they heard these explosions, but it was non-lethal. Uh, and then they quickly got the vehicles out of there um, without hurting anybody. And so none of our guys got seriously injured. Uh, none of the locals got seriously injured. And again, you know, those people, uh, again, we, we have these known kind of foreign entities that are over there manipulating these people through various means. And so we, we protected innocent life. We protected that. We preserved the legitimacy and credibility of our presence. You know, couldn't have been more prouder of the team, but that's a heck of a situation when you got 40 people, civilians, unarmed, and you, you talk about a ROE dilemma uh, because they could do real violence to you and they could do things that are really bad, but you know, you know that you're being videotaped and everyone is waiting for you to escalate. So how do you get out of that situation? 
and they just did a phenomenal job thinking on their feet and doing it quickly. How did you as a battalion commander then take that incident and influence the rest of your formation? So again, constant risk assessment is a constant process. First of all, we never went to that village again uh, because the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. You know, what what am I going to do? Just go and bug them and invite another opportunity? I know they have these agents that are living there or can get there faster as soon as they see us en route. En route. In the case, so we were a little bit more deliberate uh, when we went that deep into the unknown areas. We did not stop. You know, my mandate was still the same, like continue to provide stability, continue to understand the area better. Or at least that was my approach. Nobody mandated this. I had, I, again, I, had, I was very fortunate. Uh, Major General Brennan, uh, phenomenal officer to work for, my boss, Colonel Stedman, they gave me a long leash. Uh, they trusted me a lot. They gave me very clear, like, do's and don'ts and said, hey, you need to figure this out. You and your soldiers are the closest to the problem. Be good partners. Don't get us kicked out of Syria kind of thing. And, and, and uh, you know, I ran with that the best I could. Uh, but I was certainly... Uh, more deliberate with the reconnaissance efforts once we started establishing where that kind of jagged boundary was around these uh, weird pockets of Assad loyalists. And as we refined those, anytime that I knew I was going to kind of like poke the badger to keep them off balance, we were very deliberate. And so we always had uh, some Apaches present. We had a mutually supporting platoon somewhere else. We would go two or three different places at once so that they couldn't focus all of their attention at, at creating a demonstration against us in one location. They would have to divide and conquer these foreign agent types. And so definitely a learning experience for me because I just understood the rules of the game and, and the enemy's capabilities, enemy adversary's capabilities a little bit better. And so I think I got smarter in how I directed action in the future. Um, but the, the, the heroes of the day were you know, those, that platoon that somehow figured that out in the heat of the moment when I think... It would have been it would have been hard to judge them negatively if they would have lost their cool a little bit, but they didn't because they're awesome. So it was great to see. As we go to wrap up, and you go to wrap up battalion command, looking at the lieutenants and the young and aspiring leaders that are joining your formations, what piece of advice would you give them? So constantly study the profession. Uh, the army will give you a lot of the answers, but a lot of it you need to be hungry and want to learn. Number two, never compromise on standards and discipline. You set the highest standards and highest expectations for your organization, that's going to be a winning organization. And lastly, have the courage to lead. Uh, you know, and, and that's not just making corrections that's part of it, but correcting deficiencies, making yourself available to be at the point of friction. And in garrison, that could be going over to a soldier's house who you suspect is having some marital problems and just checking on them to see if everything's okay. Uh, in the field, that could be moving a little forward in the formation. And if you see you're veering off course, stopping the point man and making sure he or she knows that they do know where they're going. Uh, you know, Having the courage to intervene um, for the good of the mission and the good of our soldiers, uh, that's something that's, that's hard to teach. Uh, if you're not willing to just do it. And so I think those, you know, be a learner, be a leader, uh, and then set the highest standards and expectations for your organization. If you can do those things as a young leader in this army, not only will you make the army the ready force that it needs to be, uh, but you're going to be very successful along the way.
Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks, Tim. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.